Welcome, listeners, to the new uh, Books in Africa podcast. Uh, my name is Paul Bjork, and I'm your host today. Um, I'm talking today with uh, Catherine M. DeLuna, who is the uh, Provost Associate Professor of uh, African History at Georgetown University. Uh, Catherine is a, or Kate, as she goes by, uh, is a historian of Africa, but uh, specifically an expert in the discipline of uh, his comparative historical linguistics. And uh, she builds a remarkable history of uh, uh, people in Southern Central Africa, the Botat Botatwe people of uh, Southern Central Africa in uh, kind of the turn of the first millennium from around 800 to 1300 uh, CE or AD, as we might call it. Um, let me just read you a uh, the blurb from her book, and then we'll welcome in Kate and start talking to her. She uses linguistic and archaeological and other evidence in this sweeping study, exploring the place of subsistence uh, within pre-colonial society across uh, several thousand years. Contrary to the popular perception that the place of farming is at the heart of political and social change, political innovation in pre-colonial African farming societies was actually contingent upon developments in food collection, and in particular, I would say the meaning of food collection and what that meant within a community and how uh, people imposed meaning on uh, the habits of food. And that's a truth for all societies, uh, and I would hope that uh, we can take some of the lessons from this book and think about how these insights into language uh, and into uh, habits of everyday life um, shed light on uh, the way we might think about our own society and other societies around the world. Uh, Kate, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a, this uh, this will be kind of this will be fun. Um, okay, so uh, th this is a somewhat uh, for uh, for non historical linguists a uh, a somewhat esoteric discipline. Um, tell me a little bit how you got into not only African history, but in particular, uh, um, historical linguistics. Right. How I fell down the rabbit hole. Um, exactly. Well, so I got into African history because I had an amazing undergraduate teacher. I think many of us have this kind of a story, um, who made Africa seem both excitingly unfamiliar and familiar at the same time. That was Ron Atkinson in South Carolina. And when I got to graduate school, um, and had the opportunity to learn about these, methods that are not usually um, part of undergraduate teaching, as you, as you observe, um, I got the sense that we could know something that didn't, upon first sort of consideration, seem all that knowable by studying uh, the history of words. Um, and, and for me, what was exciting is that it is a way of making archives for unarchived worlds of oral societies. So um, while sometimes people think of it as like arcane or mystical or <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sort of a matter of speculation or suspicion, um, it's really just a sort of technical method that once you learn how to do it, um, you know, you know the, the sort of method and its ins and outs and its problems and its advantages, then uh, then it becomes something that allows you to write histories of places that we we might not have written histories about. Interesting. So that was kind of a uh, almost just an intellectual fascination with the possibility that such a thing could be done. Yeah, absolutely. I knew I wanted to study um, early African history, you know, the history of Africans before 
the arrival of Europeans, what we sometimes um, slightly problematically call pre-colonial Africa, when I went to graduate school. But just how that could be done wasn't something I knew much about um, beyond the analysis of oral traditions. And so um, learning about this method really opened up um, horizons for me and understanding what kinds of histories we could actually tell. Yeah, I mean, and, and the reality is uh, historical linguistics uh, does hold a major place within uh, just the discipline of African history in large part because of uh, just the influence of Jan van Sina. But uh, why don't you, can you tell us a little bit about that particular influence and, and just how historical linguistics fits into African history as a discipline and maybe, you know, how that compares to where historical linguistics fits into other uh, places and times or something like that? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so historical linguistics, as you might suss out from its name, is actually um, a method used by linguists to understand the history of languages, right? To study languages diachronically and to study um, kind of family um, families of languages diachronically. Um, but yeah, it was Jan Vancina and also Chris Errett, um, actually, if I understand correctly, kind of working um, together to kind of develop ways to apply this method to the writing of African history. I think Africanists have a reputation within our discipline as being kind of mavericks with method. And I think it's well-deserved. Um, and I think this is one of the examples where the borrowing from other kinds of disciplines has been a key way to um, demonstrate the ways in which we can know an African past um, because, of course, the archives uh, that we have for writing African history are often very complicated by the fact that African societies were oral for many African societies were oral for much of their history. That's not an absolute, of course. Um, but also by the fact that um, the archives for writing more recent past are very much um, part of the imperial project. And so this is, this is a kind of a nice way that Africanists as historians have, have innovated and contributed back to the discipline. Historical linguistics in other parts of the world um, is usually the domain of linguists, as I mentioned already, but it's also um, a key part of the way that anthropologists study the past, particularly archaeologists. So we do see um, at times collaborations between linguists and archaeologists who are working usually on kind of population history, a kind of who settled where, when. Um, and increasingly more as um, African historians have done kind of using linguistics as a way to get into um, domains of politics, of, of subsistence, of um, everyday life values, concerns, these sorts of things are, uh, I think, um, probably in the last few decades, increasingly common parts of um, the way that archaeologists are making use of linguistic data and linguists are collaborating with archaeologists uh, in other world regions like the Pacific or, um, you know, Indo-European, of course, is the example most people know about when it comes to uh, comparative historical linguistics. Okay. Yeah, this is kind of uh, what Vancina called words and things, uh, mm -hmm. kind of bringing together a number of different uh, methods from different disciplines and, and trying to put them together in order to document uh, places that don't have a lot of written sources. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Maybe let's uh, we'll come back to uh, some of the more specifics about what you're doing and how you're doing it. In fact, I would like to ask you, um, you know, just some examples of some maybe key words or concepts that you can maybe describe a little bit how you're doing it. But but first, um, let's just place what you're doing. 
the people you're looking at are you call botat botatwe 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 and and where are they? Where are we looking at precisely? How can we place ourselves geographically just so that the listeners can figure out where we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be a laundry list of um, country names because, of course, uh, the nation states that exist today didn't exist in the time period we're studying. But um, Batatri speakers historically have um, lived in regions uh, that include southern DRC, Central and Southern and Western provinces in Zambia. That's kind of a sort of heartland for uh, the Patatwe kind of community. Um, but also have moved across the Zambezi River into northern Botswana, northern Zimbabwe, um, the Caprivi Strip of Namibia, and even a few folks speaking Western Batatari languages down in southeast Angola. So this is really a, a sort of, um, the research on this project is is quite um, transnational in a sense, um, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the community is is sort of a nice heartland there, kind of focused in Zambia. So I do most of my work in Zambia. Okay. And is this a region that we would call the kind of Southern Savannah? Yeah. Broadly? Yeah, sure. So south of the rainforest, we begin to see wooded Savannah lands. And this is absolutely part of that broad Savannah um, ecotone kind of in this basin in the center of the continent, um, south of the equatorial rainforest. Uh, it's an area that um, has different kinds of Savannah woodlands, but is in general a sort of a Savannah environment kind of overlaid on Kalahari sands. Okay. And, and Botatwe is, is a family of languages. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I won't get into the technical weeds here, but um, yeah. So Botatwe, you can think of that as a group of 13 languages that um, kind of are, are like a family. They're a sub branch of a much more uh, familiar language family for Africanists, at least called Bantu. Okay. So this is a sub 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 branch of Bantu, yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that's. I mean, that, that is an important concept that there is that uh, the the word Bantu, which tends to be used uh, to, to describe people, is not actually a description of people. It's a description of a branch of, of a, a large family of languages, a huge family of languages. Yeah, Niger Congo. Compar- mm-hmm. Right. Comparable to. Uh, yeah. Okay. So linguists actually call it now Niger Congo. Not Bantu anymore. Is oh that no, correct? no, no! Niger Congo is the phylum to which Bantu belongs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Which is comparable to Indo-European or something like that. Much bigger. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So within that, we have a bunch of languages that uh, broadly uh, follow some of the same grammatical rules and uh, some of the share some uh, deep core uh, roots to their vocabulary. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, any other family, we're talking about a group of entities that share some traits that they inherit from a common ancestor, which we might call proto-Bantu. And of course, along the way, there are differences and changes that um, are definitive of individual branches that kind of arise later in time. Okay. And and that, well, maybe let's talk about this right now. This is going to be, so, and that is how historical linguistics is done by trying to compare a whole bunch of different currently existing languages and looking at the differences, you can start to map out when and where those changes happened, at least roughly. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you think of this as a process that is um, like genetic analysis of other kinds of entities, when you're thinking about languages, yeah, you're comparing um, languages that exist today in order to reconstruct their relationships to one another historically. That is to say, to make a family tree. We call it a classification, but we can call it a family tree here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you have that family tree, you can begin to take certain kinds of features, for example, words, 
and compare them in modern day uh, languages and the way that they're pronounced, that would be their phonology and and their distribution across the language family gives you a sense of their antiquity, how old they are, when they arose, what else was going on at the same time that words were invented. And from that, we, we basically build an archive from which we can write a history. Okay. Like, for example, the word house, uh, which is shared in a bunch of other Germanic uh, kind of European languages, is pronounced differently in a whole bunch of different languages and maybe means something slightly different in a bunch of different languages. And by comparing all of those, you might learn kind of uh, what people thought of as a house maybe a thousand or two thousand years ago. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, roughly. I mean, when you're thinking about kind of what ideas are attached to words, there's also the more basic work that you have to do to make sure that um, any word you're positing as uh, having great time depth actually follows the sound change rules that prove that it has great time depth. So when you were talking about Germanic, I was thinking about Grimm's Law, which is a, a rule in Indo-European whereby when I have my students come to the front of the room, I get a bunch of Germanic-speaking uh, students and uh, students who know Romance languages, and we go through Grimm's Law, which suggests that um, P goes to F in Germanic languages. So in Latin languages, a lot of words like foot, fish, and father begin with P, and in Germanic languages, that uh, word initial P goes to an F. And so this is a way that I demonstrate that phonological uh, sort of rule in, in class. Oh, that's really, that's interesting. I'd like to get into the woods on that, but uh, let's move on. Let's let's stick to uh, Southern uh, Central Africa here. And, um, and, okay, so we talked a little bit about where we're looking at the Southern Savannah that encompasses now Zambia all the way over to uh, maybe Botswana and even a little further, but broadly that region just south of what is now uh, what we call DRC Congo. what else is what? What are some of the major um, kind of besides what you're looking at? What are the major things that you know, maybe historians would recognize about the history of this space uh, and and how Botswana people related to some of the kind of uh, major um, events and uh, peoples of uh, this uh, geographical space? Yeah, I think that when um, historians or archaeologists who work in this area. Um, kind of think about the region, some of the kinds of, um, you know, sort of teaching uh, chapters, I guess, may be a good way to think about it, uh, include, you know, the the kingdoms of the southern savannas, so the Luba, the Lunda Commonwealth. The, um, these are sorts of stories that are often part of um, lectures when we are giving introductory classes on African history before the arrival of Europeans. Um, also, the emergence of... Um, sort of trade routes connecting the Limpopo to the Indian Ocean and the emergence of Great Zimbabwe, uh, famous for um, the, the sort of gold working there and the amazing stone architecture. And that's, of course, um, duplicated in other Zimbabwe's in the area. Um, and so these are kinds of chapters of history that we tend to know from both the northern, the areas to the north of the Patatwe region and areas to the south of the Patatwe region. Um, that end up being part of the the way that we tell the history of, of this region of Africa. Um, even before the emergence of these different kinds of centers of political innovation, um, we also tell the story of this region as a story of the um, sort of adoption of cereal agriculture and the expansion of pastoralism in earlier millennia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a good question. So when did, um, and, you know, again, without getting too far into the weeds, 
so we're looking at a region and we're looking at this kind of uh, huge history, uh, trying to place uh, maybe several main several centuries within really the scope of several uh, millennia. Um, but you, you're looking at people who um, uh, were farmers, but uh, also engaged in quite a bit of um, other kinds of hunting and gathering, which all societies do in some ways, uh, you know, in terms of that fishing is a type of gathering in, uh, except for farm fishing, I suppose, but uh, ocean fishing uh, that we still engage in. Um, but when did uh, farming come into this area and, uh, and, and pastoralism and uh, how does that relate to your story? Yeah, so pastoralism comes in um, earlier than um, Batatwe-speaking peoples were really in the middle Kafue region, the Kafue floodplain in central Zambia, which is kind of the focus of, of my project. Um, and then farming, cereal agriculture, the earliest evidence we have for this is dated to about the first century of the common era in an area not too far away from the heartland of um, Batatwe-speaking communities in the middle of Kafue. So we're talking really about the, the early first millennium as being a transformative moment where people are really taking on uh, cereal agriculture as, as a sort of committed um, form of subsistence. They're still doing all these other things, as you mentioned. Um, but what's different about the, say, by around 500 CE in this region of the world is that folks are kind of staying in place a little bit more. They're a bit more committed to sedentism. They've built more permanent villages. Um, so the architecture has changed. And um, this facilitates all kinds of innovation, paradoxically, in the kinds of um, food strategies we would think that they would have left behind. So they're taking um, this moment to use uh, agriculture to support innovation in certain kinds of, of hunting and fishing with spears in particular. Okay. And, uh, and I'm not sure we want to jump all the way there yet, but that's, that's the key here is, is that it's not about the introduction of cereal agriculture. You're, you're starting well after that, but what you're looking at is, um, is that when you have settled communities doing cereal agriculture, uh, as opposed to kind of eliminating, um, habits or of, of hunting and gathering, it actually, makes hunting and gathering uh, potentially some activities that have specific kinds of prestige value and that uh, and that people can engage in more sophisticated ways because they have the assurance of uh, caloric intake from agriculture. Uh, is, that, is that an accurate summary? Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the things that we often think of when we imagine farmers as continuing to hunt or continuing to fish, that these are things that they're doing to supplement farming, that these are things that they're doing, um, you know, in times of hardship. And I think that those are absolutely correct. But what we see in the in the evidence, you're right, is this kind of um, elaboration beyond what was necessary. You wouldn't necessarily continue to innovate technologies around hunting and fishing if you already have technologies that work. Um, so that's, uh, it kind of raises the question of just why folks, uh, you know, were, were, when they had a stable food source, were choosing, electing to innovate in these domains of, of, of subsistence that they didn't really need in quite the same way anymore. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, what, if I, from your book, I understand that essentially there are some, uh, you know, bigger kind of social meetings, social status, uh, kinds of meanings that become attached to, 
um, hunting and gathering and broadly what you call bushcraft. In other words, the uh, expertise in matters of that space outside of the village, outside of the farm fields where uh, where wild animals uh, still roam uh, quite widely, even now. I mean, uh, maybe not so much now, but I know that parts of southern Tanzania, for example, uh, at least uh, not all too long ago, you know, roaming lions outside the village where it might still be a problem. Um, so people who were expert in what you're calling bushcraft uh, gained some social status. How, how, was it, how did that meaning become attached to that? And, and what kinds of meanings uh, did that entail? And how did that kind of shape society? Yeah. So, so what we're seeing is, you know, the intensification of farming has this surprising effect of sustaining innovation in some forms of hunting and fishing, not all, but those that are particularly undertaken further from home, kind of beyond the fields in, in the bush, as you say. And these are especially forms of hunting and fishing that are conducted with spears. So it's around these activities that we see the emergence of a kind of novel politics of fame and reputation a kind of history that's registered in the changing meanings of words and the creation of new names, in particular for celebrated spearmen. Um, so this is not a matter of innovation merely in hunting and um, deep channel fishing that you that you do with spears as sort of subsistence activities, because we see other kinds of activities, including smelting, shifting location from the village into the bush in this late first millennium moment. At the, you know, all at the same time. So these activities are understood as related to one another. And we can see this from the way their vocabularies overlap, and this sort of reveals metonymic connections that folks are making. Um, So it's at this time that new names are developed for the kind of place where these kinds of activities um, that involve efforts to kind of poke and prod and pierce and blow and breathe into fruition, um, this place is called Isokwe, the bush, and it's a place where transformative powers are kind of prodded into action by people who like celebrated spearmen. So the kinds of words that we're seeing innovate in this time period speak very much to, as you mentioned, kind of a, a politics of fame and celebrity attached to your capacity to be able to be not only excellent in the craft of hunting or fishing with a spear, but in um, working in this new landscape that's kind of invented at this time and, and juxtaposed to village life. Um, this space called the bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that to, that was really fascinating to me because I've I, uh, I've worked. I mean, I, I knew generally that that was going on, and and it's it's a concept that uh, seems to reside fairly deeply in these uh, families of languages that fall under the Bantu categorization. I mean, I, I teach a class on slavery in Africa. We and we spend some time uh, kind of doing a case study of Dahomey. And there you also see uh, this concept of the bush, this this uh, kind of the wild space beyond um, the, uh, the the realms of the village and its uh, kind of farm fields, yes, you know, yeah, settled space. So it seems to be a very broad concept. You're mapping it here in a, a particular in a particular place. What is this? So take talk a little bit more about this kind of conceptual division and the meanings attached to that division between uh, the kind of civilized space of the village and its farms and then the uh, wild and kind of spiritually infused space of uh, the bush, the forest, and the the savanna fields beyond. Yeah, no, so this actually is like a a good moment to kind of talk about the complexities of um, parsing out Um, the ways in which Europeans who observed some of these kinds of conceptual divides 
uh, in early ethnographies were also drawing on their own ideas about the wilderness, Mm -hmm. about forests, and about juxtaposing those to village life. Um, It kind of brings up the way in which um, this distinction, certainly in in societies that are at least partially sedentary, and we're talking about Sweden farming here in South Central Africa, um, societies often use very familiar kinds of metaphors in very particular unique ways that on the surface seem quite similar across wide expanses of you know, Africa or even beyond, as I mentioned, the European example of ideas about the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's these metaphors that have been used over and over again, um, motherhood or you know, the, the sort of mother church, the, the motherland. The, so the, the idea of mother, motherhood is a, is a powerful metaphor. The idea of, the, of kind of settled versus unsettled spaces is a powerful metaphor. Um, milk, blood. Um, these sorts of metaphors are used by cultures around the world. And so what I like about using historical linguistics is that we can look at whether or not folks in this particular time and place had a word to describe this distinction or a word to name the different kinds of spaces. And then in historical linguistics, we can parse out how that word word was built from its different parts. Like what is the root of the word? Has it been manipulated with any kinds of suffixes or prefixes and these sorts of things. And so what we find is in the South Central African example, the particular nature of this divide is about a kind of space that gets um, punctured and prodded and mm. and sort of poked into fruition. Uh, that's sort of a, a, a sort of um, way we could gloss the term isokwe. And we can date it to a particular moment in time at the the sort of turn of the first millennium, when we see the extension of um, intercontinental trade networks actually reaching as far as the interior. And we see this in other places too. Karen Kleiman did a really nice study um, further to the north in the rainforest region, um, in which, you know, the sort of same moment in time around 1000 CE, we begin to say, see a real push to, specialized, to specialize in, in kind of forest products to connect to intercontinental trade. And so there's this way in which this um, distinction is used again and again in particular historical circumstances and different cultures around the world. Um, And for the Batatwe case, you know, it's very much about an investment in technologies of metallurgy and spearcraft um, because those are the practitioners who, who make use of the bush and their kinds of actions, their physical actions and, and their sort of metaphysical actions are the kinds of actions that are used to name the bush. Okay. It's so, I mean, certainly as the place that is prodded and poked, this does relate to then the connection to spear craft as, uh, as a central element of bushcraft. Um, and, and apart from hunting, just you know, hunting animals itself, um, what are some of the other, uh, kind of spiritual, uh, or kind of concepts of the spiritual nature of the bush? Uh, that are present in Potatwe, Potatwe regions. Yeah, so so in in this kind of part of the world, in this sort of moment in time, as best I can suss out, uh, you know, the the bush is this place of empowerment, right? It's a place that not everybody can go. It's a place that's seen in juxtaposition to other uh, kinds of spaces, but it's also a place that is particular, as I mentioned, to certain kinds of activities. So, I. You know, I'm not entirely sure that if somebody was in the same landscape gathering wild foods, whether it be considered the bush <laughs> as compared to when a hunter's out there mm. doing that activity. So I'm not sure that the 
that the territory itself remains stable in, mm-hmm. as much as the kinds of activities make for a particular kind of um, c- kind of a landscape imaginary, right? That that is um, thought to empower people to be successful in what Eugenia Herbert called transformative um, acts, where you're making one thing into something else. Um, and so, you know, for that reason, while I think that there are lots of parallel ideas about the bush in other parts of um, the Bantu-speaking zone, I think that the names that um, are used for those kinds of landscapes are going to reveal for us um, many different kinds of histories. And it might be that this kind of investment in um, products beyond kind of agricultural products you know, kind of leads to new landscape imaginaries at around the same time because of the extension of intercontinental trade networks and, and the sort of intensification of trade from the first millennium into the early second millennium. Um, but the, the, the ideas that were valuable for folks who made those kinds of distinctions, I think, will probably vary somewhat um, over time and place. Yeah, I mean, and there's, they certainly vary. Um, I was just uh, curious, and maybe we, we can answer this a little bit with your reference to Eugenia Herbert. I really love her book, which is on um, the techniques and the meanings attached to iron smelting. Um, and she's looking at a fairly broad swath of uh, Bantu speaking languages. Um, but in particular, she's trying to understand how people in those times and places understood the process of uh, creating iron, which has a long, long history in Africa and is one of the, you know, a big theme in African history in which uh, iron smelting uh, may well have been in, invented uh, independently. The only other place that was invented in the world uh, besides kind of what is now modern day Turkey, it may have been invented. I think the jury's still out on that, but it, uh, separately in Africa. And part of the reason we think that is because of how differently Africans thought about the process of um, creating iron, creating steel out of, uh, you know, just iron ore and, and iron heavy clay and so forth. So anyway, so talk about Eugenia Herbert's book and how that uh, served as inspiration and how that shaped some of your thinking uh, on your topic. Yeah, I feel like I'm still struggling with her book because it's kind of forming the basis of a sort of next project. Um, but I, I think that what was powerful for me about her argument was that um, was just this category of activities that were understood as transformative because I very much saw that in you know that idea in play or mobilized I think um, by folks who were kind of inventing these new forms of celebrity and fame and politics of reputations attached to one's ability to make um, to 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 bear fruit in the bush and so what what Herbert's book does for us is remind us of the parallels that are drawn between certain kinds of activities and deep commitments to and concerns about fertility and fecundity, right? So even as we often think about this in terms of the fecundity of fields and ensuring rain and worrying about, um, you know, the, the herds increasing and all the rest, we're seeing that these same concerns are carried over into, you know, bushcraft, into hunting, into, um, metallurgy. And so the connection to human fertility and to um, sex and to um, ideas about uh, creation and transformation and and procreation are are kind of overlaid also into this idea of kind of, you know, poking and prodding into fruition, this idea of, um, you know, making use of a space that has the ability to kind of bear fruit 
by connecting metonymically to ideas about human fertility. And so I think that this is one of the things that she adds in. It begs the question, it begs for a study really of a a deep history of sexuality in Africa as well, um, because we see you know, a lot of parallels, uh, with, um, you know, uh, ideas about, um, you know, public healing and, and these sorts of things and the role of, of sex in, in chiefly investiture and, um, you know, transforming, you know, women into kind of, you know, purified widows and, and these sorts of things that, that, that there's this way that, um, that fertility is, is sort of an overarching metaphor for a lot of the activities that, um, emerge in new ways or are changed. This is a, a kind of trope that is used again and again in, in this part of Africa. Okay. Let, let's, let's back up a little bit um, just to put this in terms that, uh, that I kind of the terms I put for my students um, that, you know, what she's talking about is something I call metaphors of the body, which is that we all have a body. We all kind of know how it works. Uh, we, and, uh, you know, adults then know how sexuality works, uh, kind of from a physical standpoint. And then, it, then it's a matter of the meanings we impose on that. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of meanings related to sexuality in kind of Western European culture. And, and we, as much as we try to put those aside, we uh, continue to carry with them with us. And, uh, and, and so it's, it is a tough job to put aside kind of deeply embedded ideas. And that is, that kind of speaks to how deeply embedded ideas continue on in language and in concept, the exact kinds of things that you guys are doing as historical linguistics. But specifically here, Eugenia Herbert, I mean, among other things, she's uh, kind of demonstrating that the process of smelting iron, the process of heating up iron ore or iron-rich clay um, in a uh, furnace uh, fired by charcoal uh, fire, uh, the process of heating that up and then, uh, and then separating out uh, some kind of purified metal, iron, uh, from that uh, that uh, iron ore, when that iron comes out, it's it's understood as kind of having given birth. That this this chunk of iron was was birthed by this furnace, and that the whole process of making it then, you know, in the is is can be described. It's not you know it's not the same, but it can be described using the process of uh, of sexuality and fertility, and so that then a, a bunch of ideas about the body can be superimposed on to ideas about how this science of iron smelting is working uh, in ways that people can kind of make sense of. And, and because of that, the transformation that happens is understood through some metaphors of body and the way the body can transform uh, an act of uh, a sexual act into the birth of a child and that kind of magical process. Um, what other tra- kinds of transformations are you looking at uh, that have that are this kind of that we have we would have to think of in uh, kind of jumping outside of our concepts and into some botatwe concepts? Yeah, well, I mean, hunting is an interesting one because it's a metaphor that um, you know it its connection to um, likely to kind of ideas about sex and and kind of the kinds of relationships that. Um, you know, allow for, um, sex, you know, lovers and, and mm-hmm. marriage and, um, these sorts of things, the hunting, uh, sort of aspect comes to the fore immediately in addition to the smelting. Um, but that's interesting because of course we also use the metaphor of hunting as it connects to 
um, politics of sexuality, but in a more sort of aggressive way, right? To be on the hunt is is sort of a, a, a phrase we sometimes use for, um, you know, to, to be on the prowl, to be, you know, stalking. Yeah. These are um, perhaps a sort of more aggressive form of sexuality that, that our culture, I very much hope, is <laughs> pushing back against. But it's a, a similar kind of metaphor. Um, what's different in the Patatka case is that it's not understood as sort of an aggressive form of sexuality or, a, you know, a sort of metaphorical way of talking about aggressive uh, forms of, of sexuality. Um, instead, what we see is, is that it's understood as a way of explaining, explaining, as you mentioned, it's an explanatory metaphor for understanding what exactly is happening when you're going into the bush and you're successfully hunting an animal. Uh, it, it connects to the kinds of social ties that you're able to sustain when you produce an animal that you're able to circulate and a skin that you're able to gift. Um, and it's particular kinds of animals that take, carry particular kinds of um, meaning for, for the culture. Uh, for example, there's a set of antelope that are um, feminized at, at the same moment in time. And they're the kinds of antelopes that seem to have, at least in more recent times, been used as um, uh, the skins of the kinds of skirts that you would give to your lover or your betrothed if you were going to end up marrying. And so we can kind of see these connections between the ideas of, of sort of um, provisioning and caring for and sustaining that yield a kind of um, social ties that can be um, elaborated upon or, or made into marriages um, later in time. It's a sort of, it's a very different way of thinking of the metaphor of hunting as it's connected perhaps or explanatory of sex than, than what we have in our own culture, even if the metaphor of hunting is still used in both cultures. Right. Right. Um, and, and that leads us into kind of this idea of prestige gifts and that uh, the particular prestige attached to spear hunting and so forth then uh, was at least attached as well to the particular prestige and meaning of certain types of uh, products that you could uh, hunt or gather from the forest. And then when you gave those products as gift, kind of like, you know, a diamond ring or uh, uh, a silk robe, or I'm trying to think of other uh, you know, I suppose it more domestically, um, uh, maybe once upon a time of, of giving a, sort of like the stuffed head of a deer or something that you could put on your wall, but gifts that had particular meaning and prestige, um, that was part and parcel of how you got married and created a family. And so that this kind of bushcraft was not merely sexual, but was attached to uh, kind of the whole process of socialization and finding your way as a as a young man into society. Yeah, that's so key because, of course, there's a, uh, a culture in which there isn't the same idea of the sort of autonomous individual. Um, any act of sex was implicating different spirits, different members of the lineage, because it had the potential to kind of change the social landscape if a, if a, if a, a child was born of, of that. And so, yeah, absolutely. This is a way in which it, it's about the social connections that can be made. And what's really key here is that these innovations are taking place at the same moment in time that we also see a transition, I think, into new practices or perhaps for the first time practices of matrilineal descent, right? And so this, the whole way that people are even understanding who counts as family, 
who counts as a friend, who counts as um, a sort of um, relation to whom you owe something is changing. And so hunting becomes a way to um, sort of sustain and make these sorts of social relationships. Um, But it also becomes um, a way, I think, to explain how society should work. I didn't know this when I wrote the book, but later on I did a little bit more work um, when I was doing another project with an archaeologist, Jeffrey Fleischer, and kind of came to realize that the animals that they were um, kind of targeting for these new forms of hunting, especially the communal hunts, where you're getting a large group of people together and they're culling and, and, and killing many, many hundreds of animals often, um, that, that the kinds of animals that were targeted and rendered kind of feminine in, with new kinds of names were often those that seemed to exhibit in their own um, environments and in their own kind of processes of reproduction the kinds of attributes that were definitive matrilineality. So the idea of um, a young um, doe uh, antelope leaving her herd to go and join the herd of her mate, that these were kinds of um, activities that seemed to reflect uh, the kinds of practices of matrilineality that were coming into, um, into practice at this moment in time as people were kind of extending their social networks beyond the local. Interesting. So, I mean, and and what we should maybe realize is, and this will lead into another question that, you know, matrilineality and patrilineality are essentially ideological choices at a, at a fairly deep level in a society that come to be taken for granted, but they're nonetheless choices. And that in this case, you're seeing not a matrilineality that was just sort of like, oh, well, I guess you came from your mother, but uh, but was a choice as to how to organize society uh, via um, the idea of inheritance through your mother's side of the family. Um, is That's new at this point in time? Yeah, I, I think that this is kind of hotly debated by scholars, but I don't have evidence of any practices of matrilineality before this sort of late first millennium, early second millennium moment mm-hmm. um, of sort of social and economic transformation. And so I actually do think it's new. Um, And so I think one of the things that's happening, as you're mentioning, is that like the idea of matrilineality, which is borrowed into this region from areas to the West, um, seems to let people do and make new kinds of connections. It seems to facilitate incorporating outsiders into lineages more successfully, outsiders who are men. But it also allows for a new kind of circulation of women and in the way that it's practiced among Batatwe communities, and I don't want to get into the dense um, anthropological uh, sort of names of these kinds of matrilineal systems and all the rest, but basically um, through something called cross-cousin marriages, it created these really robust cohorts of, of, of um, folks the same age living in villages, even if they're sort of moving into um, regions that are inhabited by other kinds of people, which I think is happening on the Batatwe, um, excuse me, on the Batoka Plateau, um, in the sort of turn of the millennium moment, and so the strategies of matrilineal—you have to think of them as strategies, as you're saying. There's strategies for expanding your um, connections, your social network. There's strategies for finding new kinds of marriage partners, for finding new lands to farm as the uh, climate is shifting, uh, and so. You know the the nice thing about this particular case is that um, as lineality is a really key concept for Africanists, what this case study sort of highlights is the way that 
cohorts of cousins, of same age cousins, end up being a really key feature of the success of these processes. Because of course, um, other kinds of languages in this region die out and Batatwe languages come to predominate, which means we're getting the sort of winner's side of the story by telling the history through Batatwe words. But we can kind of see echoes of it in the multiple meanings that some of these words had as, as these institutions are being adopted for the first time. Interesting. And that kind of leads to a, a big concept in African studies generally, which is um, the concept of wealth and people. Um, and you mentioned Jane Geyer is saying, well, this is really a wealth and knowledge that you're bringing together a whole bunch of people who have sets of knowledge and you're putting that together. But really, I mean, this that, that may well be, but uh, in terms of the way it relates to these ideas of fertility and everything else, wealth and people is, is a very... Uh, um, there's a fairly conscious project that people are engaged in. Would that be accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I would see them as, um, as quite so, so different. I mean, I think that there's this way in which um, wealth and knowledge um, is very much about kind of forms of knowing and acting on knowledge that successfully bring about wealth and people successfully mm-hmm. bring children into the world, into the lineage, ensure crops are coming to fruition, kind of, provide for biological and social reproduction. I think, uh, so in that way, I think that what we're, we are seeing absolutely in this moment in time is sort of a, a really, um, a revolution around sort of ideas about social organization and the knowledge that you need in order to successfully settle new areas and the social network that you need. Um, but that the, the sort of knowledge side of things is sort of celebrity and fame that you that can accrue if you know how to successfully hunt or smelt for example ends up being implicated into um the um the the kind of creation and sustaining efforts of of making new kinds of lineages through practices of matrilineality okay yeah because wealth and people is not merely about having lots of children it's about putting together people who can work together uh towards some communal goals uh, yeah, whatever yeah. those are. I think uh, Jane Geyer's um, F- sort of goal was to kind of remind us that it's not just any old folk that will do. We don't have to think about the capitalist logics of accumulation. In fact, we have to think about composition. I think that's the way that she puts it. Right. And so it, one does wonder then if adopting new strategies of matrilineality, of kind of shifting the way you reckon kin and who you get to marry or who you should be marrying, if transformations as profound as that in the way society is organizing itself are not about tapping into and bringing into the fold folks who have um, kinds of knowledge that, that maybe your, your own community didn't have, um, especially when you're talking about the extension or intensification of iron smelting happening at this time, the extension and transformation of forms of um, hunting and fishing at this time. Yeah, there's real transformations taking place in this moment. It's, it's the moment that archaeologists kind of talk about as the transition from the early Iron Age to the late Iron Age. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, um, I want to kind of, for the last few, uh, five, 10 minutes here, kind of, uh, broaden our scope dramatically and, uh, and, and think about how this kind of study, what you're doing methodologically, um, how this, how the effort to understand these kind of a society that is quite distant from us, uh, you know, even from, you know, I mean, it's less distance perhaps from Africans in that region today, but nonetheless still quite distant, this, uh, uh, you know, being hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. 
we're, we're thinking about different worlds. I just want to think about how these techniques and this type of thinking uh, might be applicable or help people in other fields of study uh, think about things. Um, and, uh, well, shoot, there, I did want to ask about, uh, let me ask about one more uh, book kind of regional thing, and then we'll, then we'll broaden out. Um, talk, you, you talk a little bit, and you've mentioned a little bit, long, uh, long distance trade. Um, for for uh, listeners who don't quite know what we're talking about, what is the long distance trade? How, where is that happening? How is that happening? Um, Botatwe people are distantly connected to it and are, and are feeding into that trade. What is that trade? And, and uh, how do we understand that in this time period? Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. Um, and well, I think yeah, that let's, I mean, let's, let's talk about Kila, <laughs> Quickly, yeah. you know, and uh, that kind of thing. Okay, so um, one of the things that's going on is is certainly by the end of the first millennium, um, the you know, Swahili coast has been integrated into Indian Ocean trade networks. So here we're talking about circuits that connect um, the sort of you know, Middle East, that connect um, you know, South Asia, that even connect um, kind of indirectly all the way to you know China to um, you know Indonesia. Uh, so, so these are um, circuits of trade that that uh, East Africa is increasingly um, brought into, connected to, um, and that of course um, East Africans are seeking out these connections and they're and they're sustaining them through different kinds of um, transformations on the coast and the way that society there is organizing itself, the way that they're constructing their architecture to kind of host visiting um, traders and, and all the rest. But of course, the kinds of materials that are being sent out into the Indian Ocean are very much um, products that that are, um, you know, available even as far as the inland areas. You're talking about ivory, for example, um, gold that's coming from the Zimbabwe Plateau. You're talking about, um, um, you know, perhaps different kinds of, of food products, um, um, resins, and these sorts of things, and and quite likely slaves. Um, but one of the things that's happening in the interior is you're also beginning to see the extension of trade networks at this time in the interior. So um, by the late first millennium, Chibwene on the coast of the Indian Ocean in Mozambique is connected to northwest um, uh, Botswana over by the Okavango Delta and perhaps beyond. And we're seeing the equatorial rainforest connected to the Upemba Depression. We're seeing um, also the beginnings of research into north-south um, connections between the, the forest all the way down into the savannas and, and vice versa. And so what I think is going on is that the Batatwe communities are kind of tapping into this um, and they end up kind of acting as a central frontier. They're not near enough to sites of industry and metallurgy like the Copper Belt or the jewelry ateliers in the Sodilo Hills of northwest uh, Botswana or, or the sites of political and population concentration like we see uh, later on in, in Great Zimbabwe or, or earlier a bit in the Pemba Depression concentrations of wealth, they're not close enough to be kind of swept into uh, the, the orbits of those centers, but they're close enough to be connected to them and to be borrowing ideas and to be um, adapting and borrowing and sharing kind of um, styles of jewelry and, and styles of eating and all the rest. And, and so I think that what this allows for is for Batatwe speakers to have a really... Um, eclectic um, sort of culture that borrows from the waxing and waning sort of centers on its periphery. And I think this central frontier is probably the most common sort of historical geography in, in sort of early African history, um, although we've tended to focus on centers like kingdoms and, and industrial areas like, you know, the Copper Belt. 
Um, I think it was much more common to see these central frontier sorts of places. Um, but this allows for, I think, I would argue, um, the, the sustaining of a political culture that's quite acephalous, that we don't see the borrowing of the idea of the concentration of wealth, the concentration of political authority in this region of Africa. Instead, we just see folks creatively borrowing in from all around their periphery, uh, different kinds of ideas and practices and institutions that really um, disperse authority into even seasonal kinds of activities like hunting um, that, that end up really facilitating sort of long durée uh, cephalous politics here, kind of uh, decentralized politics rather than its centralization. Okay. Yeah. And, and that in some ways I would, it's not a rule, but I think we can look at lots of other uh, kind of cultures that grew in out of trade or were kind of major trading cultures. Many of them tended to be a bit decentralized in their uh, orientation. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that kind of comparison, but what we're talking about here is that you have some centralized kingdoms in this general region um, but the people you're looking at, in fact, uh, chose never that not to go down that, but it didn't not, not only chose consciously, but their their cultural habits, their ways of thinking did not lend themselves to creating centralized authority, but rather all of these uh, activities tended to generate um, a decentralized kind of authority, authority that was temporary in different kinds of ways. Is that yeah. Accurate? I mean, if you can borrow in a kind of practice or innovate one that looks like something being done in a, in an area with centralized politics, but somebody else can borrow some other idea from a different kingdom nearby. I mean, you know, how, <laughs> who wins that debate? Who, who's able to convince the, the rest of the community that they're the ones who really know how to hold power. I mean, this isn't, this isn't really very easy to do when you have so many different places around you that are innovating in different sorts of ways and you can tap into uh, and make arguments from and, and borrow um, any of the, the multiple ways of thinking about um, kind of um, creating paths to authority or paths to political power. Um, so that, that kind of geography really lends itself to the persistence of acephalous politics. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, um, let's, let, let's think about some uh, kind of broader level things. Um, just if we think about like you as a historical linguist, um, you must hear words and, uh, and almost immediately start to think about, uh, what is, where this word came from, yeah. and what it means. I mean, what, what kinds of words do you hear just in everyday American English today where, where you're like the, the depth of this term is completely different than what you think it is? Um, um, Wow. Yeah. I, it's hard to kind of think off the top of my head. I mean, um, yeah, lots of examples. You know, if I'm driving to work, I think about commuting and the way that that is very much about the way we understand today is very much about the history of technology um, and the building of the railway system in New York City. Um, but hmm. that it actually comes from a longer history of the idea of transformation, um, that archaic meaning is is available to us when we think about um the sort of judicial world and, and commuting a sentence. Um, but, you know, it's amazing how you can know the archaic meaning even as the, the sort of more recent overlaying of meaning is the first one you think of. And I, I think that this is a really powerful uh, lesson for all of us when we think about the power of language as an archive for writing about pasts that even are more recent. Um, and, and we see this uh, kind of happening a little bit in the, his, the historians, uh, the historical discipline. 
Um, but yeah, it's a, so yeah, you're right. Many of the words that I hear kind of um, do beg this question. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I sometimes use different ones as sort of explanations in my classes. Mm-hmm. I think this happens a lot actually with um, hearing talks at conferences or reading other people's um, work in African history. Um, I'll often see a word for something, you know, it's always in italics in our books or articles and, and think, oh yeah, that comes from this or that root. And it's interesting because the backstory to that suggests that, that the meaning is even invoking these other ideas that the author might not know about. Um, I wish we did a little bit more to connect the work that we do to um, more recent histories. I think that would be um, mm-hmm. important for us to consider doing. Well, you know, what strikes me a little bit is that, you know, and, you know, things do get transformed. They get transformed through, like, you know, certainly colonialism and the impact of kind of what we might think of as capitalist ways of thinking and so forth um, and and the, the recon redistribution of gendered power dynamics and so forth have all brought a bunch of change. But I'm kind of curious, you know, right now, uh, sort of sociologists will oftentimes look at um, relations between uh, young women and older men and, and, you know, point to this concept of sugar daddies, which I'm sure is a term that comes from uh, European American concepts and are kind of transport or transition brought into uh, their study of this, but they see that as a problem. They see that as, as something that's, uh, you know, uh, both um, keeping women or, you know, kind of uh, keeping women in a secondary status in society. There's something that is helping uh, or contributing to the spread of HIV AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases and so forth. But nonetheless, we see in Africa, this, you know, this kind of idea of the sugar daddy and it has its own, it does, is that something where you, if one places it in this long durée history, uh, we see how those kinds of relations have transformed? And does that give us some in, more insight into how we might read those relationships in that context? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Right, There's this way in which um, ethnographers do an amazing job and historians doing, do an amazing job kind of like understanding the complexities that um, such terms kind of um, occlude, but but knowing about the past of the kinds of social ties that linked people together through their bodies um, maybe brings other ideas to the fore. So um, kind of one of the projects that I'm working on now, which I kind of alluded to a little bit when we were talking about Eugenia Herbert, is about trying to understand histories of fire through pyrotechnologies like metallurgy and potting and cooking and swiddening and, and fertility and the politicization of emotional and sensory regimes that are kind of transformed by these new pyrotechnologies and changing ideas about fertility. And so this is necessarily a history of sexuality to some degree. Um, and so like this idea of a sugar daddy, as it's kind of colloquially known, and you described it as kind of being right. a, a sort of gold digger kind of thing, right? That's a sort of negative idea is, is kind of um, actually, you know, erasing the ways in which there there's a sort of long history of conceptual linking between acts of material and kind of bodily life making um, particularly in times and places where you know objects and bodies were not necessarily always understood as distinct or, or even when individuals weren't understood as acting as individuals when they were engaged in acts of sex and so um, you know that you're right there's this way in which um, kind of deeper histories of of um, some of the kinds of work that's being done um, say by Mark Hunter or others you know might 
actually be really powerful for for kind of linking up to um, kind of modern debates about what actually is going on, what the politics are, um, you know, between you know men and women, you know, around relationships that we understand to be about intimacy or about kind of um, material needs and wants. Yeah. Well, and uh, maybe another one, um, you know, uh, that strikes me is that, uh, you know, poaching is another one, a kind of a, a, another transgressive problem, right. That's, that's depopulating still elephants or rhinos or different things because of uh, desire for, these kinds of what we might call forest products, you know, ivory or rhino horn or leopard skin or whatever, um, there's still there still is an, an export market. There still is uh, outside markets for these products, and uh, and uh, and although uh, the prestige of hunting now has turned into criminality, um, I'm wondering again uh, if you see any uh, kind of depth to the history of bushcraft and how that might still be um, shaping uh, the the way that uh, the politics of poaching play out kind of on the ground in rural uh, Southern Africa. Yeah, well, I mean, on, on the one hand, it's quite obvious that there's a long history of being able to tap into intercontinental continental networks if you have, you know, skill in acquiring some of these kinds of materials, right? Um, but there's this other side of it, which is about kind of, um, histories of masculinity and about, um, the, the capacity to kind of provision and, and, you know, take care of your family that, that, you know, are, are a little bit more durable in terms of concerns, but, you know, the, the criminalization of these acts is, um, one that actually made this project kind of in some ways hard to do, um, because I wanted to be very careful not to, um, unless people offered not to ask them, um, to share personal stories of hunting or these kinds of things, um, particularly because um, it was legal in Zambia and is illegal in Zambia um, when I was doing field work for the project. And so um, even just the politics of doing field work to research on these kinds of topics is complicated by uh, the, the sort of um, the way that the criminalization and ideas about sort of judgments basically on, on these kinds of activities um, in the modern period. Um, end up changing or adding layers of meaning or or making it difficult to talk about other ways of, of valuing these activities interesting yeah so i mean there's just a world of uh kind of knowledge to think about there but uh, you know certainly this kind of work really helps uh grant us um some depth of uh of thinking that uh that, that is really exciting um Maybe lastly, and I, we're kind of out of time here, but I, I am curious, uh, you know, here, you guys who are involved in uh, historical linguistics, I mean, you really are dealing with, a, a, you know, kind of a scientific understanding of language and how language is put together and and, and, the, and you're so careful with uh, how you use language, how you make connections between words. Um, you know, that uh, people who aren't familiar with the discipline have a hard time maybe even following uh, the precision that you're using. Um, but then there's another uh, field of uh, where language is a prominent theme, you know, and what we're thinking of kind of postmodern uh, studies and, uh, and the study of discourse and the idea of meaning being generated through differentiation and so forth. And that's become, you know, very popular and, and kind of 
widely used and abused. And I'm kind of curious how you read the relationship between historical linguistics and the kind of things that we think of as discourse theory. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so I, I think that your point about the um, the kind of precision maybe is, is valuable here. So I think that the work that we do um, follows a lot of the insights of this kind of turn to the discursive, the idea that meaning is made in context, um, that um, that we pay attention to pragmatics when we're um, trying to reconstruct meanings. But of course, what we're doing is we're um, finding a sort of aggregation of all of those individual acts of, of meaning making and, and um, sort of discursive flamboyance or, or sort of creativity and, and trying to reconstruct a kind of core basic kind of flexible maybe you can think of it as a sort of like clay ball that people can manipulate in, in particular ways, but with limits, right. Um, you know, as, as words are, are conserved over time. So I, I think that in some sense, this attention to the social aspects of meaning making is part of what we do. I think that in many ways, historical linguistics as practiced by historians in Africa and, and by linguists in Africa is moving away from um, this idea of a kind of one-to-one mapping of, of sort of, um, you know, here's the old word for a hoe, here's the old word for a spear, and kind of thinking more carefully about um, what we would call morphology, these building blocks of words, and also about the um, the sort of broad landscape of meaning that that can be invoked by different words. And we do this partly by comparing words to their synonyms and homonyms and antonyms and looking at them uh, sort of used in real life speech um, in contemporary periods and in recorded documents and ethnographies and and the rest. And so um, while I think that we're not doing discourse analysis, I think we are being attentive to the fact that um, words take on meaning in use when we're trying to understand the, the sort of maybe the, the sort of landscape that, of, of meaning that might have been attached to a certain set of sounds in the past, uh, that, that sort of flexible sort of ball of clay that I was sort of using as a, as a metaphor here, uh, that, we're, that we're trying to pay attention to the multiple kinds of shapes it can take, even as we know we can't actually reconstruct individual instances of meaning making bet- in, a, in a communicative event between, um, between a speaker and an audience. Interesting. Well, yeah, maybe we should probably leave it off there. I mean, it it reminds me just of the kind of playful creativity that is part and parcel of Swahili speech in Tanzania, for example, that there's a constant, deliberate uh, kind of creation of new words. And and of course, there's a lot of crossing now between English and Swahili and so forth. But but that, that process is very much a living process in all languages, I suppose. But certainly there is a there there is a, a fun, playful creativity that I think is maybe fairly common in in uh, these parts of Africa even today. Yeah, I think White McGaffey did great work thinking about that. And, it, and if it and if it uh, and if it holds and if it's taken up by more and more speakers, it's something that I think will leave a trace that we'll be able to see in the future. Interesting. Okay, well, let's uh, leave it off there. And thank you for your time, Kate. This has been a fascinating discussion um i hope uh readers will be able to look up your book and uh and uh, try to have a better shot at making sense of it it's a sophisticated 
study collecting food, cultivating people, subsistence and society in Central Africa uh, on uh, Yale University Press. And I probably should have mentioned that if I didn't in the first part of the uh, podcast, I maybe can get that in there. But thank you for your time and uh, and uh, all the best as you proceed through trying to figure out how to teach uh, through this pandemic period and <laughs> all our lockdowns. Stay healthy and uh, thank you again. Thank you.